Retaining identity through ignorance. This is Big Red Potion. Game On Network. You're listening to Big Red Potion, the podcast that plays Animal Crossing for all the wrong reasons. As ever, I'm your uncompromising host, Sinan Kubber, staff writer and associate editor for thegamereviews.com, and I'm joined as always by the man who puts the Prime into Metroid Prime, the Elite into Elite Beat Agents, and the Orange into the Orange Box. Fellow TGR staff writer, Joseph Delia. Joe, how have you been doing this week? After that intro, I can't say anything but great. Uh... <laughs> Doing good, everyone's good, uh, ready to get going. Awesome. Okay, so let's get cracking. So, as my Twitter feed knows all too well, I've been really quite excited about the two guests that were due to come onto the show. Unfortunately, uh, one of them, first wall rebate Shane Hinton, had to cancel at the last minute due to uh, internet connection problems he's been having this week. So, happily, step in Eddie Inzato, uh, TGR Editorial and Features Director and Game No Director who manned up at the last minute to fill in Shane's shoes, which kind of makes up for last week, and Eddie's last-minute substitution of Oblivion instead of Braid, which, you know, a bit of a curveball, Eddie, but whatever. So, <laughs> Eddie, great to have you on the show again this week. I, I always like to keep you uh, on your toes, you know? So, yeah, thanks for having me again. I'm glad I could come and be your knight in shining armor. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. As if this show isn't chaotic enough. but <laughs> oh, Well, thank you anyway for coming in at the last minute. It's fantastic. As for my second guest, uh, he's probably a man who doesn't really need an introduction, so it's probably a mistake that I wrote one, but in any case, he is Michael Abbott, author of the Brainy Gamer blog, one of the most prominent and important gaming blogs currently being written. He also produces the Brainy Gamer podcast, which along with uh, Shane Hinton's First Wall Rebate has been one of the major influences on this podcast, and uh, I could go on, but instead I'll close with one of my Twitter friends' description of Michael, which was a legend amongst game bloggers. So Michael, thank you so much for coming onto the show. Wow. That was great. Thank you. <laughs> Could you come to my house and do that each morning when I get up? <laughs> I've already been accused of doffing my hat too much already on this podcast, but I thoroughly meant it that time. And for me personally, anyway, you've been on one of the influences in my writing, so it's a real honor for me to have you on the show. And well, I'll stop you. doffing my cap. <laughs> thanks. Well, it's great to be here, and thanks very much for inviting me. Well, pleasure. So uh, let's get kicking on to this week's topic of discussion, uh, which will centre on a theory that's kind of been put forward a few times over the last few years, that video game genres, like the first-person shooter, like the Japanese RPG, they're actually hurting video game development and discussion. We're going to discuss whether those genres are hurting gaming in short, but rather than delve straight into that question, we're going to uh, start off by centering on a recent example that kind of will allow us to, to uh, flow into the discussion. And that example is Resident Evil 5 and its controversial exclusion of the run-and-shoot mechanic, 
which has already been discussed to death, admittedly, so we're not going to talk too much about it. But I did want to ask my guest to start off with a really quite basic question. Did you guys feel that the exclusion of running and shooting hindered or helped Resident Evil 5? And we'll start with Eddie first. Coming into Resident Evil 5, I sort of knew what to expect because it was very similar to Resident Evil 4. Um, in Resident Evil 4, I felt like it didn't hurt it because the game still held on to a lot of the traditional survival horror elements and tried to keep the pacing of those older games intact while still giving gamers an updated way to play. Um, in the new one, in Resident Evil 5, I feel like they've further abandoned that old uh, survival horror convention and basically sort of uh, jumped more into the realm of your typical third-person shooter. However, they kept their old control scheme, or well, slightly updated it. But uh, in this case, because... Um, it's less of a survival horror game and more of an action game. It felt even more awkward than it did when it wasn't as refined, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I think that's uh, a pretty good point. I mean, I, they've they've strayed away from the kind of the roots of the series, which was you know clearly survival horror, and it's really basically an action shooter now. And I, I mean, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. If if it's a good game, I really don't care what genre it is, frankly. But it. It seems to me that they've always been a little resistant to deal with controls um, all the way back, you know, when other games had sort of made the leap to controls that are more user-friendly and, you know, just e easily learnable. And Resident Evil 4 suggested that they had sort of decided that they were going to join the party and, uh, you know, kind of overhaul it. So I was very encouraged in thinking that, you know, 5 would be the next step beyond that. And it just it feels to me like the controls are a, a significant step backward, uh, disappointingly so. And um, I don't know. It's just not a very interesting game to me. I, you know, it's 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 hard to shoot. It's hard to move well. It's hard to maintain a sense of momentum. Uh, the pacing is kind of screwy. I know some people like those things, or they you know disagree with that sort of assessment. But for me, it just um, and you know the, the race issues aside, which I think are problematic significantly. So um, it's just not very much fun. I I put it down, and I, I don't think I'm going to pick it back up. Well, I think the, the series has always had a bit of a unique control scheme and a unique way of handling certain things, especially the action um, throughout the entire, since the beginning, uh, since the beginning series. So I think that the new one is, is no different. It, it definitely has its, its own uh, weird way of controlling, and it definitely takes some getting used to. I mean, when I first picked up the demo, me and my friend had to kind of just walk around for like five minutes just trying to get used to everything and the, the inventory and everything like that. But I think that's kind of what makes Resident Evil different than everyone else. It, even though it is now basically an action shooter, it, it does have a kind of unique take on the, uh, almost a Japanese take on the uh, American action-adventure third-person shooter genre. And even though it may not be as smooth or as easy to pick up as some of the other more recent games, I think it still has an appeal. And I enjoyed the demo, and I, I'm you know, enjoying the game as well. So I, I think it, it definitely it has, its, it, it has its nook in the genre. I should have mentioned before I, you know, sort of to preface my remarks that my experience with the game really is single player. I have the PS3 version and, and a lot of the friends that I have that wanted to play, you know, are Xbox users. So I haven't been able to team up with them. And um, so, you know, from, from what I understand, the game really is quite different in uh, co-op and you really need to play it in co-op to give the game its full due. And, and I haven't done that. So, 
you know, I should say that, that everything I'm saying has to do with my single-player experience. But that's interesting because, in a sense, the co-op is another, is another thing they've implemented which makes it a, a different kettle of fish to what Resident Evil 4 was. It makes it more like an action shooter, which um, I haven't played it either uh, on uh, co-op. I've just played it with the AI. And for that first chapter, it was okay, but it certainly wasn't fun. And I, I, I wonder if that's whether... I don't know whether co-op was a good inclusion for the for the Resident Evil series. I don't know. What, what do you think, Eddie? I think that co-op was a good idea to just push the push the genre forward. Push well, maybe not the genre, but the franchise forward. Because I think that was something that a lot of gamers really were interested in uh, in the last game. They thought, oh wow, how how great would this be to go through with a friend? And I think that playing with a friend is is the best way to play the game. Um, what going back to what Joe said though about uh, he and his friend having to walk around for a little while to to get a handle on the controls, I totally agree with that. And I think that um, <clears throat> that's a problem with a lot of these games that sort of try to blend genres, is that they do things differently and they force you to adapt. And it's easy to quickly sort of uh, you know, have an aversion to that rather than to try to adapt yourself and and play the game for what it is, which I think is sort of what we're we're getting at with um with our genres killing gaming. Um, it makes us uh, think in very narrow ways, and it it limits how much fun we can have with games that do branch out. I think it's interesting. I I mean, well, I guess we'll talk about genre in a little while, but just related to Resident Evil, I think it's interesting to compare the co-op experience and the, the sort of way that game is built to what, what Valve did to, with Left 4 Dead. And it seems to me that there's a kind of a, just a, a philosophical difference in the way those two companies approach designing those games. Left 4 Dead, which I've played you know a fair amount of in, in co-op, it seems to me that they sort of looked at how we play together, particularly how we play shooters, how we move, how, how we shoot, how we how we sort of survey the situation and pathfinding and all that sort of stuff. And they, they adapted that game with an understanding of how we tend to play those games or how games like Gears of War have taught us how to, how to play. And um, it feels like Resident Evil 5 wants to say, you know, you guys have been doing this certain thing, but we need you to do it this way because we've designed it this way. And um, I'm to a certain extent, you know, you're always going to have to re- model yourself around whatever game you're playing but it just it feels to me like what Capcom wants us to do with Resident Evil 5 is so much of it seems unnecessary to me it feels like Valve sort of met us halfway there's a certain number of things you have to learn and then you've got it and you're 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 going it's interesting that you brought up um, Left 4 Dead because uh, Mitch Caparato in Sword Fighting, when he was talking about uh, Resident Evil 5's controls, he mentioned Left 4 Dead. And he, I've got this quote from him. Where he said, Now that I've had a chance to play through both levels of the Resident Evil 5 demo, I think I share some of the concerns you guys expressed. But after a while, the whole thing started to make a little more sense. The controls are still slow, but cranked up to the fastest setting, they seem adequate. I mean, Resident Evil games have always been slow. This one's at least on par with the fourth. I'm wondering if the transition from Left 4 Dead to Resident Evil 5 is to blame. They seem similar on the surface, but play so differently. And I just wonder if, if how much of the press reaction is to do with Resident Evil 5 coming out after Left 4 Dead and, and having to make that step back with the controls. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's, that's kind of what I mean by um, 
being conditioned by prior games, it makes us look at new games that do things differently, like Resident Evil 5, uh, with a critical eye based on what we've learned from from everything else rather than what's actually there. Yeah, I mean, I I hesitate to want to say that, you know, because a game does something well, then all the other developers have to do it that way. And, you know, you sort of kill off innovation um, in the process if you stick with that kind of theory. But it's tough in the post-Gears of War control era to fight through Resident Evil 5 controls. I mean, you just have this sort of sense that Man, I, you know, I, I've played these games that do this so much better. Why is why does this have to be so hard? And um, I, I do think Mitch is right that when you crank up the settings to the highest, uh, you know, fastest uh, amount, it helps. But it it still feels very kludgy to me, very stodgy and awkward. And uh, I I have a feeling that if I just stuck with it, you know, and gave it a few hours, that it would all sort of get into my bloodstream, and then I'd be fine. But um, the game really has to make it worth it to me to do that. I mean, there has to be something really compelling going on underneath all that to make me want to stick to it uh, and fight through that. And um, in the case of Resident Evil 5, it just didn't for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe they just have to decide whether they want to be a survival horror game or an action shooter game and go all the way with one or the other. Well, I mean, this is this is exactly where we're coming to in the, in this discussion, whether whether that decision to go one way or the other is affecting the end product. I think it's weird that they went this way in the first place, because if anyone played Resident Evil Zero on the GameCube, that was pretty much the same as this, where you control two characters at a time, you have to do these cooperative uh, moments, but in that game you couldn't play with two players, you just would control both at the same time, you would switch on the fly. And uh, my personal opinion, and a lot of uh, general opinion, said that that was one of the worst main series Resident Evil games that had ever come out. And they went back to that with this, and it's it's better now. But there's still, it it the the reason Zero kind of got a bad rap was because it it was kind of a departure from where the series had gone, and it really didn't change things for the better. And I think it's very strange that Capcom decided to go down the same road with this one. And, and the press is making quite a bit out of um, the controls and everything else. But even the co-op gameplay at its core changes so much of what Resident Evil was and and is that I think it's it's strange and I don't know if they had just made a direct sequel to Resident Evil 4 if it would still be having these problems you know without co-op and with maybe some more shooting mechanics but um but I, I read a recent interview um on oneup.com with Resident Evil 5 series producer Jun Takeuchi and he spoke about the control controversy and said when we approached the development of Resident Evil 5 we were we went in knowing that they weren't making a typical first or third person shooter we were making a Resident Evil game it was important for us to go with the design decisions that would make the best Resident Evil game that we could. We didn't want to go in trying to make some other game. So even though that kind of run-and-gum shoot gameplay might suit other games, we definitely think that the current Resident Evil 5 controls are the best design choice for this type of game. And he also went on to say, There are already a lot of games where you can do anything you want and you have complete freedom with your character's controls. That's a perfectly good design choice. But I don't think that necessarily suits Resident Evil. I think that by imposing certain restrictions on the player, you actually help to heighten the fear and the tension, and ultimately you create a better survival horror game. So in light of June's comments, do you guys think that they successfully kept the tension of a Resident Evil game, or do you think that it kind of... uh, compromising the controls blurred the line too much and made it too much of a shooter for it to be scary or anything like that? Well, you know, I think in order for that statement to be valid... The, what he what June said, I think the game really had to do more to actually be this frightening game because um, 
it just seems like although they do want to keep that Resident Evil uh, persona intact, they're like you said, you have if you're going to make changes, um, you have to make them for the better of the of the game or of the franchise or series or whatever. And in this case, it seems like what they did uh, to change the game more took away from their uh, their original design philosophy than than uh, augmented it. Yeah, there that quote makes sense to me. I, th- I think I respect the idea that you design. The, the controls around the game, they just didn't design very good controls. <laughs> I mean, to me, that's really just the bottom line. It it, it could have worked, um, and I love the idea that they went with co-op. I think co-op is sort of where things are right now, and, and they really took a big stab at co-op, and uh, a lot of people really like that mode and are having a good time with it, and that's cool. Um, I just think the controls are kludgy and stodgy and difficult to manage, and if they hadn't been, then... We probably, well, we might be celebrating, you know, what a revolution this game is and how cool it is that they didn't just remake Resident Evil 4, you know, sort of Resident Evil 4.5 or something. Maybe there's something to be learned from what they did and maybe Resident Evil 6 will be, you know, the real step forward that, that some of us were hoping this would be. Do you think if they if they had just kept the controls as they had for Resident Evil 4, you know, made no compromise with... Uh, with the aiming at all, that we'd at least be able to point and say, well, this is how it, how it was before, um, and you were used to that. And if they'd eliminated Carp and just essentially, if they had made a Resident Evil 4.5, would would we still be saying these things against Resident Evil 5? I respect them for for taking a risk and adding a big feature. I mean, it, it would have been very easy to make Resident Evil 4.5, you know, and just put it in a different setting and. You know, put it in the next gen kind of console look, and you've got this really cool game that people would probably like a lot. And uh, you know, it's a risk for them to do co-op uh, and to make it so key. I mean, it's the soul of the game. You're, you're playing co-op, whether or not you're playing co-op. <laughs> you know, uh, she's yeah. there, either controlled by a human or not, and that's the only way to play the game. Uh, I, just, you know, I like it when big developers with big franchises take big risks like that, and sometimes they're going to fail or, or come up short. Um, but I'm glad they did it. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I do agree that I, I prefer to see risks being taken than sticking to try and test formulas. But um, I'm not sure I'm, I'm with the idea of taking risks for the sake of taking risks, which I'm, I'm not saying that's what you're suggesting. But I, I have a suspicion that's maybe where they were coming from with with some of the things they implemented with Resident Evil 5. Uh, just to, to kind of close this discussion a little bit, we, there was a bit of discussion on this week's Listen Up about. Uh, things like the the atypical setting, I think that's what um, N. Guy Kroll and, and Patrick Lepig were bringing up in particular, uh, this idea of Africa being in the sunlight and the, the shifting pace of the zombies and how it just didn't feel thematically like a Resident Evil game. I, I, I'm certainly one, one of the people who's played this game from the beginning, uh, from the first Resident Evil. Do you guys feel that the enjoyment of the game is, is related to it feeling like a Resident Evil game or... or if it doesn't feel like a Resident Evil game, can we still enjoy it? I think it was still enjoyable because uh, it, it still does feel like a Resident Evil title. I think I think Capcom was kind of stuck in a hard place, as you were say, guys saying uh, with this one, because had they really made Resident Evil 4.5, people would have complained. And had they you know, changed it to a Gears of War-style run-and-gun shooter with that type of control scheme, I think a lot of people would have complained. So I think there's really... They were kind of put in a tough spot with this one to, to see what the fans would take for a, a new sequel the series and i think 
Um, I mean, if you look at the unsuccessful Resident Evil games that Capcom has tried to throw at us, like uh, the Gun Survivor games, Dead Aim, uh, the Outbreak series, all these, uh, they took place in the same world as the Resident Evil games, and they, they shared a lot of the elements, but they didn't really have that feel. And I think Resident Evil 5 does have that feel, and it does feel um, a, like a part of the series on a whole. And I, I think for that point, and once you do get used to the controls, I again, I did play it in co-op, like Michael said, so maybe my experience is different than his would be. But um, I, I, I did enjoy it, and I do think it is a, a worthy entry for the for the franchise. I think it's certainly a, a worthy entry into the franchise, but I have to say that I feel like it doesn't feel as much like a Resident Evil game as uh, most of the past titles have, simply because um, just of the way things play out. Uh, like, we're talking about controls a lot, but I feel like you have to look at it holistically to really... Um, appreciate the game and the way that you fight all your battles the way that uh enemies are are sent wave after wave at you it it doesn't leave you like creeping around thinking oh what's around the corner you just are expecting okay there's going to be a ton of enemies coming at me and it's not really exactly what uh resident evil has been all about in the past which is not to say that it's terrible um i like the game and I think it was a good game, but um, it's it's really departing from uh, what it once was. But did you like Resident Evil 4, Eddie? Because 4 had a lot of the same stuff, too, where it would be a lot, you could be stuck in a room and there would be guys pouring in from every window. Do you think this is even a departure from where 4 was, or do you think 4 was kind of the breaking point where it moved into this separate separate series? I think 4 walked a very fine line. And I think it was like the revolution in the in the Resident Evil series, but I think its ambiance and just the way the world was put together and the environments that you were led through and the pace of of the exploration, even though there were some parts with uh, hordes of enemies, it still kept that feeling of Resident Evil. You know, being I think maybe even being alone. Um, you know, maybe the, the co-op element takes away from that lonesome feeling that the Resident Evil series has always uh, put players through. So I think Resident Evil 4 held on to it, but I think it really walked that fine line before, you know, the tipping point into uh, something different. Uh, would you agree with that, Michael? Yeah, I think that's a good point about the being alone. Uh, it reminded me of when I played the last um, Metroid game, uh, was it, is it uh, corruption? What's the third? The yes, one right. that came out. Yeah, you know, suddenly you're not, you don't feel alone. I mean, you keep going back to this area where people like walk up to you and you know, hey, Samus, you're really cool. You're a really good fighter. You know, <laughs> uh, this this odd kind of uh, relationship you have with uh, other humans, and you sort of, I don't know, it just changes the dynamic of of the player relationship with to the world and. Um, if that's kind of central to the experience, which it probably is, I think, uh, with Resident Evil, then they did change it. Uh, maybe, I mean, the co-op to me, it's a great idea. If it had been well implemented, like I said, um, maybe we'd be speaking about it differently. But uh, I, I do think that it's good to reboot a franchise sometimes. I think you have to, you know, Mario 64 or even like Metroid Prime, two examples of you know, major reboots to existing popular series that um, sort of needed that. And 
So it I don't I don't know if it, what we call this a reboot, but it, it maybe it's not the kind of survival horror we're used to with Resident Evil, but uh, I'm not terribly precious about that, I guess. I, I just think that maybe the difference between with, with Mario 64 and, and uh, Metro Prime is maybe thematically they weren't so much of a departure. It's just the mechanics, and maybe with, with Resident Evil 5, it's it's it just doesn't, <laughs> at, at, at a base level, feel like zombies anymore. Yeah. It doesn't feel like a zombie movie. Which is yeah, that's a good mean. point. I, I think that is a good point. But certainly Resident Evil 5 isn't the, isn't the only game which people have been pointing the finger and saying there's innovation to be needed. And for me, there are certain genres. I'd say the first-person shooter, the MMORPG, and the JRPG, which are, for, the, for me, they're the three genres which are being standardized, where the games from those genres are resembling each other the most. And I was just wondering, not whether you'd necessarily believe that there is the standardization, standardization happening, but if it is happening, which genres did you guys think that it is happening, for better or for worse? Well, I... <sighs> I'm going to be a defender of genre, I guess, uh, in the conversation, and I don't know, maybe we all will defend it, but um, I think genre is, is a, really neither a good or a bad thing. It, 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 the artists approach genre as a kind of a, of a canvas or a, maybe a, a framework would be a better way of thinking about it that has certain rules attached to it. It's a certain kind of language, and, um, and the, the great thing about genre is that it establishes a way of sort of going forward that the audience has expectations that you can sort of play with and that it has a structure. And for an artist to be able to work within it, you sort of hit the ground running with genre rather than having to establish everything from scratch. And so, you know, when you think about how artists deal with genre, some some great designers, film directors, writers, you know, who've played with genre in the most interesting ways tend to be um, memorable to us, I think largely because of the kind of changes they ring on the genre that they work within. Um, so, I mean, I, I spoke a, a couple of weeks ago with the designers of Flower on my podcast, and I was struck by one of the things that Genova Chen talked about, which was to say that for him, working within limitations, within specific kinds of limitations, are very helpful to him as an artist because it it defines the situation for him and then he can be sort of maximally creative within those within that space and he didn't specifically refer to genre but um i know that you know writers and, and and artists who do deal with genre often find themselves sort of by choice staying within a genre because they they want to kind of um explore it challenge it stretch the limits of it and, and that can be very exciting, I think. Mm, and we we uh, we talked a little bit actually about that interview with um, that you did with Genova Chen and, and Kelly Santiago, and uh, I must admit I was very impressed by both of them. And I, I, I you could say arguably with Flower that uh, it's a, at the end of the day there's a flying sim, which uh, does something no flying sim has done before, which uh, I, I guess is one way of looking at it. Um, Joe, what, what what genres do you feel are maybe becoming too standardized or, or or just are becoming standardized i think there's um there's a lot of that i mean the the open world action game like the grand theft auto kind of defined has pretty much stayed the same since the, the unnamed thug from gta 3 first set foot in liberty city and i mean even gta 4 is it, pretty much the same thing it, it, it the city was so much more alive but 
you're basically doing the same things in the same kind of missions, the same structure. They really didn't grow on that too much. I, I like what Michael was saying. I think it's that's definitely good if you could look at an established genre and, and pick apart what makes it good and then expand on that. Um, that is really where a genre would play in to be good. But I think a lot of times a lot of developers are just looking at a genre and saying, oh, well, everyone does it like this, so let's do our game like this too. And like uh, the fighting genre is one of those. I mean, I think Tekken 3 was probably the last game to really change the fighting genre significantly and adding a ton of bonus modes and, uh, you know, all these tournament things and stuff. And I, every every 3D fighting game since then has pretty much been the same. But um, like Michael was saying, if, if, if the genre can be used as a base point to expand from, I think that's really where the genre could play in as a positive thing. I think that's a good point about... Um working within a framework of a genre and then maximally um, expanding upon it within that framework. Because I feel like maybe if you have a canvas that's miles wide with no limitations, you're only going to get a little bit of paint on each spot. But if you're, if you're restricted, you can really make something beautiful. So in that sense, starting with a framework and um, maximizing everything uh, is uh, definitely something good for the developer. I guess, it, um, with, with Michael maybe being a bit more of a, of a defender of the genre, I'm probably going to be more offensive towards it. The whole this whole discussion came into my head when I've been playing when I was playing Lost Odyssey on the Xbox 360, which I am finally getting into after just 13 hours. But uh, anyway, for me, uh, I, and I, I do appreciate that it had the Sakaguchi, the creator of Final Fantasy, influence, and, and even uh, Nobu Imatsu with the music, but. It just felt like, even with all its things it was doing with its um, with its narrative and with the tone and maturity of the sto- of the story, it felt such like a typical JRPG. And this is coming from a huge JRPG fan. I, I don't know whether it's just the the final straw that broke the camel's back, but I, I, it took me so long to get into that game and get past having to do turn based combat again, and with the same typical type of elemental. Uh, system and for me I kind of where you guys are saying it, there's a framework to expand from for me I, I guess you, with Lost Odyssey there is this framework where they've expanded from but for some reason I still keep coming back to the framework and, and finding trouble with it I think that um, being restricted can let you focus all your creativity on uh, maximizing the the better aspects of that particular genre but I also feel like it's only the very best games in a genre that actually take it a step further. And like Joe said, you find a lot of them just retreading the same ground, and that's where genre's a bad thing, when they take it not only as a framework, but as like a template or, or just, uh, uh, they just an exact copy. Um, game uh, Genres that I think are really starting to fall victim to this are like, the first-person shooter genre, um, like you said, the, I feel like the JRPG genre has has fallen victim to that long, long ago. Um, so now it's it's almost like a given that a lot of JRPGs are going to be the same. But really, when I think when you bust out of those limitations, it's when you can create the the best sort of games, um, and it allows for the most creativity, which may be more difficult uh, as a developer, but in the end, you end up with something that is head and shoulders above the, the rest if it's done correctly. 
Yeah, I mean, I understand uh, <laughs> the limitations of this sort of slavish uh, clinging to the conventions of the JRPG genre. I mean, it, I think you and I have both written about this, that it, it's just it's troubling how we don't ever seem to get anything moving forward <laughs> game after game. And Lost Odyssey was just painful in that regard. Um, but that I don't think that's necessarily... That has nothing to do with genre per se. I think it has to do with, you know, having a, a sense of uh, commitment, I guess, to these conventions that make up these genres and, and sort of holding them so precious that they can't be played with or dealt with in any way. Um, but that doesn't mean that the genre itself should be seen as dead or stifling. I think it's the choice of every designer when they sit down to do this, how how slavishly do they want to follow the genre? I mean, I could fl- sort of flip this around and suggest that genre is an incredibly empowering thing if you think about it from the point of view of a designer who wants to sort of do a mashup. Uh, so, for example, I mean, the poster game for this to me is a game like Puzzle Quest, which <laughs> is a puzzle game, and uh, you know, it's also a role-playing game, and it's also a strategy game. It just sold like crazy. I, I think it's incredibly popular, way more than I ever expected it would be. For I think for those very reasons, it's this perfect little, not hugely ambitious mashup of these uh, genres. So, do you feel like um, the genre mashups are best when they actually take um, structured elements of multiple genres and put them together in such a way that they're all easily recognizable, rather than trying to create one cohesive sort of new beast? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I, I um, Well, for, with Puzzle Quest, for example, I thought the role-playing would just be silly, you know, that it would, it would just be wanting to sort of get through that so that I could get back to playing what's, you know, essentially a bejeweled clone in a way. But um, if it's well done, I think we just keep getting back to this. It, if it's well done, if it's well implemented, if it's clever... Um, if there's a story that's sort of kind of tying it all together that's worth telling, then it changes everything. Um, if it's not, then it feels like these things that have been sort of glommed together that don't belong. Uh, I thought they got it just right with Puzzle Quest. Yeah, I mean, you see a lot of that now where um, even traditional like first-person action games, they will have racing uh, or some type of vehicle segments in it. That's just part of it now. If a, a first-person shooter doesn't have some type of vehicle in it, it's considered you know behind the times. And the genres have really been merging a lot lately, and I think the, with, since we have the, the, the current-gen systems in play, especially, we've been seeing a lot of these mashups that have um, almost kind of revolutionized the way certain genres are. I mean, as I said, the shooters must have some type of other element in it. I, actually, I was um, I went to a presentation about the upcoming Terminator game recently, and it just almost kind of assumed that's a very Gears of War style shooter. You almost expected it to have um, the you know the online co-op, the multiplayer mode, the uh, the vehicle segments, all that stuff that that kind of game always has. And I asked the developer that, and he said, "Well, no, we don't really have any of that stuff." And it kind of caught me off guard. The game almost felt behind the times even before it came out. Um, and what I want to say is that I think. A lot of the times, developers forget they're making a, they aren't making a movie. Um, they they hire professional writers to pen the story, get A-list Hollywood talent to put the voiceovers in, and nab theatrical composers to handle the score. Yet when you ask them about the gameplay, they're like, "Oh, well, it plays like Gears." And I think that's part of the problem. There's definitely a, 
the case in the JRPG genre where a lot of them look at how Final Fantasy does it and then say, oh, well, we'll just do it like this and we'll expand upon it here or there or whatever. But I think a lot of development teams really have their priorities a bit backwards and that, you know, while we still keep seeing this constant repetition within genres of, oh, it plays like Gears, oh, you know, it's it's just like uh, Super Mario Galaxy, except it, it has this little twist on the, the formula. I think it takes the rare developer, something like um, Clover or Platinum Games and uh, Team Eco, they really, every time they put out a new game, it's something completely different in a completely different genre. And, you know, these guys don't really want to make the same game over again. I think that's really where um, where we're going to get this creativity, where we're going to get this deviation. And I, I, especially now that games are so damn expensive to make, um, we're just going to keep seeing these, oh, it's like this game, oh, it's like that game, and less of the expansions on the actual genre that we would all like to see. I think you could make a really good case for the fact that the real impact of RPGs isn't within the RPG genre, but it's the way that the RPG elements have permeated into sort of other genres. And I mean, racing games are RPGs now. Uh, sports games are RPGs. Uh, shooters have RPG elements. That, that RPGs have those, that those certain kinds of elements that we understand to be structurally defining of that, of that genre have found their way when they're useful into other games. Now, I would argue the best RPG I've played this year is MLB 09, the show. <laughs> it's a baseball <laughs> game. And, I'm, a and I'm not kidding. I'm not, not, that's not a joke. I mean, that, they have, uh, there's a mode in that game called Road to the Show where you basically, I mean, it's pure RPG. You, you, are, you create a character. You, you must level him up. You must take him through all these challenges. It's hard. Uh, and it's mechanically very um, precise and uh, very... Uh, um, complex, uh, with you know tons of moving parts, and if you want to be really, if you want to challenge yourself and kind of play it on extra hard, you can. Um, and I, you know th- that that experience of playing that game is greatly enhanced by its RPG elements. Yeah, that's that's a great point. I mean, honestly, from my own personal perspective, I was never into RPGs. I think the three that I played in my life were Final Fantasy VII and the Lunar games. But when Mass Effect came out and I was able to get into this shooter game that also had these deep RPG elements, it really turned me on to that kind of gameplay. And I mean, I'm playing Fallout right now, and I love it. I've been doing every single little last thing in it. So I think that yeah, that expansion of the RPG into every single other genre out there, especially, as you said, the MLB, um, I think that's, that's a great point, and that's really where things are going to be heading in the next couple of years. It's fascinating that you brought up um, Fallout 3 and, and Mass Effect, because arguably the shooter elements are secondary to the RPG elements in those games, and yet you both you define both of them as shooters in foremost in your mind. Well, that's what, for me, I saw them, I saw the, the shooter elements and all the screenshots and the trailers, and that's what drew me in, and once I was able to actually get into the game, I saw this much deeper, this deeper experience that just drew me in immediately, and I was hooked. That's I mean, I, I do definitely agree with what you've all been saying, Michael brought up, about the idea of mashups being potentially the key to making things feel fresh and... and Different, and I, I'm immediately come, what comes to mind is Valkyrie Chronicles on the PlayStation 3, and how it's blended so many different genres into. And I must admit, I was very down on the demo, and uh, I've had a chance to play it again since, and uh, I was wrong. That's a very good game, but uh, at the same time, when you brought up vehicles, Joe, it, it, in first-person shooters, it made me sort of think, well, you say that, but you can almost argue that the the vehicle part of a first-person shooter is just as much as part of that genre as it is of any other genre. It's almost like it defines the first-person shooter shooter genre now. And um, 
yeah, it, it reminded me of something um, I read from Destructoid and Jim Sterling. He wrote recently about uh, how hardcore gamers, when they think about the game industry's ten- tendency to rehash and follow latest trends, um, nothing tends to, to strike out and appear to be its own, and immediately Killzone 2 comes to mind. And uh, I just wonder, if if hardcore gamers want games to stand out, why do they tend to swarm to games like Killzone 2 and Halo 3, which are so epitomize their genres so much uh i people buy what they know um <laughs> and and you know you associate a, a entertaining experience with a game or a movie or a book or whatever and you know the sequel comes out or another version comes out and you know you you assume that you might be able to replicate that great time you had i it's it's not surprising that it, across media people gravitate towards what they know but I think that there are, I mean, I, I don't know how well these words work, but the hardcore gamer who's really into games and who's really interested in looking for games that offer something different, I think about uh, a game like Mad World, um, which I'm playing now, which is basically just a, a beat-em-up. It's a brawler, um, and it doesn't do a lot of things to revise that formula uh, mechanically, um, I'll, you know, it uses gesture controls and Wii stuff, but what what they've really done is they've they've completely rethought the art style and the aesthetics of the experience and put it into a kind of a running man sort of setting, you know, of this kind of fight that's being broadcast. In other words, they've they've situated the genre differently without rather without really rethinking the genre. They just resituated it. Um, it just breathed life into it in a big way, and I think. Gamers who've played a lot of brawlers um, just grab onto that sort of thing, and it's like they've discovered water in a desert. Um, I have yet to play Mad World, but I'm looking forward to it. But to respond to what you said, Sinan, about um, hardcore gamers gravitating towards uh, games that seem to retread old ground, I think it's very important that there's a distinction between hardcore players of a particular type of game and quote-unquote hardcore gamers who are looking to um, advance the medium by by adding to it and seeing new things come in. And I think the reason is just the reason that those people gravitate towards the games that are very similar to what they know is because that's the type of gamer they are and the the different type of gamer looks more for novelty in new games I think that's a fair point I, I guess this comes back to when we were talking about the Wii and, and the casual market and the expanded audience um, I, I don't know what, what do you think Joe do you think that there's a certain type of gamer who's looking for a, the game they know and, and trust or and then and another type of gamer who's looking for something completely different well I think as much as hardcore gamers want to retain their identity and, and get these new type of experience I, I they still do end up buying most of these standardized games at one point. I mean, I know I'm guilty of this myself. I have plenty of games with two, three, four, five in the title, and I still continue to buy them, even though after I get them, I feel like I've been gypped out of something different and new, and I'm just playing the same game from <laughs> last year. But, uh, I mean, it's it, because these games keep making money, developers really don't see any need to reinvent the wheel, and they continue along the same path that's been successful before, and I perfectly understand that. I mean, if you look at the music genre right now, it's starting to flounder because every single game plays exactly how Guitar Hero 1 did in, you know, four or five years ago. And I, I think it, if gamers want a change to happen, they're going to stop buying the titles. I think 
that's why, I mean, every sequel series has a point of diminishing returns at some point, and uh, Guitar Hero is going through that right now as they put out God knows what uh, they're putting out every month. Um, <laughs> Guitar Hero Jefferson Starship is probably the next one that's going to pop out. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, as long as the hardcore gamers will just continue buying whatever, but um, I think eventually it's going to get to the point where the money is going to stop coming in and the developers are just going to have to innovate just to continue making what they need to make. Yeah, I mean, so to kind of to forward my thought a bit, I guess what I'm trying to get at is if, if there is a certain type of gamer who's reticent to innovation, and you just have to look at all the problems Mirror's Edge faced with that, um, and with the economic insecurity we're facing, are we going to see less of less games like Flower being released, less games like Mad World, less games like Valkyrie Chronicles, which are trying to do something different, because that risk is just not a risk that pe- developers can take? I think a lot of it has to do with the development cost and the development cycle and how it all works for certain games. If a if a small team like that game company can release a game like Flower um, and it, it catches on with just enough people for it to make a, a nice, decent profit, then you don't really have to worry too much about what it's doing to genre or whether it's challenging somebody's idea of genre. But... You know, I mean, I, I just can't imagine what it would be like to be Square Enix making Final Fantasy games. Um, <laughs> I mean, the, the, the audience for those games, the, the hardest of the hardcore, if, if you know what I mean, the, 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 the defenders of the realm. Um, and it, not only do you have gameplay and mechanical issues, but you have lore issues, you know, where people are very protective of just the way you tell those stories and the whole experience of it being, you know, graphically and artistically a certain kind of thing and the whole cutscene issue. And I just, it would just feel like a huge, dark, dank jail cell to me, you know, <laughs> designing in that environment. <laughs> I feel sorry for them. But that's, I, I would argue, largely fan-driven, that they've, they've built this fan base around those games and they're, they've been terrific games, but they've kind of back themselves into a corner and um, the kinds of things that they call like you know massive innovations uh, are really just tinkering with the, uh, the the innards of of the fantasy Final Fantasy RPG system and you know people will have big online fights about whether or not the inventory system should have been revised this way or that way I mean that's what we're down to um, it's terribly limiting I, I would totally agree. In fact, our next episode is going to be all about Final Fantasy series and, and what it even means anymore because I'm, I'm a big Final Fantasy fan, but uh, for me, what the series comes down to anymore is not where it was for me when I was playing 7, 8, and 9. It's, but uh, that that's next show, and I'm not going to get dragged into that. But um, well, I will say, if you don't mind me being very chatty, that, uh, <laughs> that I, I'm, I'm playing Crisis Core right now and that's a real eye-opener i'm having a wonderful time with it partly because of the the elements that they've abandoned i mean they've really kind of let go of certain things and um i'm enjoying it way more than i thought i would so I mean, again it's a mashup game like you, you've been talking about the it's got the uh, action elements uh, i haven't actually played it myself but i've heard nothing but good things from people who have um and uh I don't know. <laughs> I could really go on about Final Fantasy, and I think it's safer if I hold that off for next for next week. But I, I certainly do agree with where you're coming from. And uh, if a game like uh, Flower can be made, then there's no reason why the bigger companies can't do it. What, what do you think, Eddie? Do you think gamers are are a little at fault by going to a certain type of game? Do you, if we were more, 
if we were less reticent to, to things like Mirror's Edge, would we be seeing more things like Mirror's Edge? Absolutely. Um, I think there are a lot of different limiting factors, and definitely uh, the fan following of very strictly moderated uh, genres and just archetypes in games is one of them, because there are those people, like I said, that are just looking to for the next you know, the next uh, incrementation of that number at the end of their series. And they don't really care about innovation. They just want to play their same game. I mean, you have people who have been playing EverQuest for 10 years, and that's all they want to play. So there are still, there are certainly gamers like that in other genres also. It's just their genres don't persist like an MMO does. I think other there are other limiting factors too. Like Joe mentioned, the the financial, the economic aspect of it is huge. Because you see a lot of creativity and innovation in games that come out on the cheaper-to-develop for platforms like Xbox Live Arcade, PlayStation Network, community games, um, online. If you go to, like, IndieCade, um, they have tons of independent games that are just ridiculously creative and are really incredible. But they don't have the money backing them to get out there into the public eye. And um, the the people who do have the money backing them don't want to use it to take those risks to try to make something that will catch the attention of everyone who may or may not be looking for something new. So yes, definitely fans are partially at fault. Definitely uh, economics are at fault. And um, sure, plenty of other things. I just can't think of anything else. <laughs> I know Michael brought up Resident Evil 6 and what we can expect from that. Do you guys think that um, how all this controversy of the Resident Evil 5 controls, is that going to affect Capcom's decision with Resident Evil 6? Do you, do you think they're going to make it go one way or the other this time around? I think that um, it's going to be interesting to see what they do with Resident Evil 6 because, I mean, if you look online about Resident Evil 5, you're going to see a lot of this this backlash, even if... The vast majority of people who purchased it don't feel this way, which, I mean, there's no real way to tell if they do. But um, just looking at the public talk in forums and on websites, it's been pretty negative. And they've already said that they're going to move in a different direction for Resident Evil 6 than they have before. And I'm, I'm really interested to see what they mean by that. Um, because 4 was such a departure from the, the older series, I can't even imagine what they could do now if, if anything from the original trilogy of games would even be left in what would become Resident Evil 6 but um, I'm, I'm hopeful, I, I trust Capcom I think they have good good, uh, good eye for the series and I, I'm hoping that what we get isn't something like Silent Hill Homecoming which pretty much removed <laughs> many of the elements of the original games, um, so we'll see in a couple of years I guess I like it when these kinds of firestorms occur you know, after games are released and people are talking about why this or that didn't work and I, I do think developers follow this, those things pretty carefully even though they sometimes admit that don't admit it but uh, to me um, because f uh, 5 has been so controversial for a variety of reasons uh, not the least of which are the controls um, I just think it's it puts a spur in the side of Capcom to really think hard about what they want to do next and um, to me that's a good thing it's they're in a position of having to respond creatively and push the series forward as opposed to say um, a game like Bioshock, you know, kind of a very well-regarded, highly acclaimed game that in its sequel, uh, you know, what do you do next? <laughs> uh, if everyone loved it, 
what do you do next? It's sort of easier when people have problems and then you have some place to start. I think that, that Capcom will absolutely take into account all of the criticisms of Resident Evil 5 because you can see it just from Resident Evil 4 to Resident Evil 5. They adjusted things that people complained about most. The inventory, the fast weapon switching, the the ability to strafe, things like that. They took that into account and they implemented it. So I think now they'll just do the same thing. They'll take all of the criticisms of Resident Evil 5 and they'll try to incorporate solutions in Resident Evil 6. Who knows, they may even go back to something more similar to the old games because they when they were developing Resident Evil 4, they had something like that in development, but then they sort of canned it to move in this direction. So you never know. They could they could take it in a number of directions. They could go all out action. They could make it Gears of War, for all we know. I, I, I think we kind of all argued that they're not necessarily there's a wholesale standardization going on, but there, there, are, there are certain genres and certainly certain game series which are... are becoming very similar resembling each other and i just wanted to really we've kind of discussed of what you know things which are going which are not doing that you know get mashup games for example which are showing a different way of of going about games development but i wanted to kind of discuss whether actually standardization of games is a good or a bad thing and uh, i've got a quote from steven tatilla who's probably resident evil 5's biggest defender um over at mtv games I, I'm not necessarily agreement, but I, I appreciate what he said about the Resident Evil 5 controversy. He said, what's Resident Evil about Resident Evil 5 is the one thing that no other game dares to do. Some say it's because no other game developer is so backwards to repeat it. I say development studio Capcom is smart to maintain it. It's the one thing that's maintaining this game's soul, those controversial controls. Movement rules cannot just define games, but force a wonderfully distinct experience. Here is RE5. In the proud tradition of a game that allowed you to run around, shoot, and then roll into a ball, Metroid, and of the game that allows you to never jump but always swing with a grappling hook, Bionic Commando, we have a game series that has a core, simple rule that you, um, about how you can move through it. In other games, you run and shoot at the same time. In this game, you must either fight or flee. You must either risk standing your ground, or you must venture to run where safety hopefully awaits. What I wanted to really go from that is to discuss the idea of whether genres like the first-person shooter are being perfected or whether game series are losing their identity or even both. Um, and I'll start with Michael. What, 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 do you, what do you think about what Stephen said? I think that's sort of the stick shift argument, uh, <laughs> and I don't buy it, um, that, that all cars should have stick shifts because that's a really good way of driving a car. Uh, and that, that because that's the way we've designed it and that's been useful. Um, it, it's sort of the soul of driving a car. And I think, you know, like real serious drivers do, in fact, prefer the stick shift. But it, it turns out that there are a lot of people that would, you know, really like to be able to drive that car that uh, would prefer an automatic transmission. And um, it, I mean, it's, it just seems to me that um, suggesting that the soul of a game is the thing that prevents a lot of people from enjoying it um, is a kind of a cockeyed argument. Uh, it, it doesn't mean that it's broken, you know, I mean, it, and, and for people who really want that kind of challenge, um, again, it's harder to do, like a stick shift, but, but we've seen what an automatic transmission is like, and a lot of people would love to be able to have that option. Yeah, that, that's definitely a good counterpoint, but then 
like where do you where do you draw the line? Like, do we make every game appealing to the majority, like to the masses, or do we make games that appeal to people who still like you know older mechanics or different mechanics? You know what I mean? Well, you know, maybe you put your finger on something that would be interesting with with RE5, which would be having a choice, uh, yeah. a, con- a control scheme that works a certain way or another way. Uh, I think it just feels like this um, system has kind of been foisted upon us, and I know some people like it, but I think a fair number of us feel like it's kind of a step backward. It's hard for me to defend something that doesn't work well, it, to me, as a feature. <laughs> mm. I, I, that goes back to that that quote which um, Jay brought up about uh, Takakuchi, which he said it, it wouldn't have worked for that game. Is then not an argument that um, just because just because it it, it it sticks out is? Do you think that maybe it, the controls are difficult to adjust to simply because it's different? It's it, it sticks out not necessarily because it is clunky or slow, but I'm not saying that it isn't. And and for me, I I actually think that it's not quite as clunky slow as maybe Michael thinks it is. But do you think that just by being different, it, it becomes negative? Yeah, I think a lot of people see things that way. Um, just once it's different, it's automatically not as good as something they're familiar with. Hmm. I don't necessarily feel that way myself, but <laughs> but yeah. I could see well, I think if, they had, if they'd rethought the gameplay and if something else significant was happening... I mean, um, you've got these controls that we could say are they work or they don't work, but ultimately you're trapped in a shack or you're pinned into a corner and you've got hordes of people coming at you and you've got to shoot them. And that's basically what we've been doing for a long time. Uh, and it it also brings up, the game also brings up certain kinds of images of of race and culture and and, and civilizations that I think are troubling which are separate issues but there's nothing in my view happening with the game that sort of says well this is a little tough for me these controls but gosh there's so much interesting stuff happening here i i'm gonna live with it because uh, it's worth it i just it feels to me like with the exception of it being outdoors and sort of nightmare in sunlight uh it's hard for me to figure out what's in it for me what why i need to put up with this Right. Yeah, I see that perfectly. I mean, and that also it ties into the point of what at what point does a sequel go too far and fail to be recognized as a title from a, a series that it's supposed to represent? I mean, uh, Michael, were you a fan of the earlier Resident Evil titles? Yeah, I, I mean, I was a big fan of the originals. You know, just as a survival horror, it was amazing that you could play a video game <laughs> and, and right. get freaked out like that. Right. So, I mean... That also goes to show, like, has the series changed so much now that it's not even in the same ballpark as it was before? I mean, some would argue that Resident Evil 4 wasn't a true Resident Evil game. As Eddie said before, it kind of walked the line between being a Resident Evil title and being some type of uh, third-person action game. Um, and the same was said about Silent Hill Homecoming this past fall, which um, amped up the action a lot compared to the earlier games. And uh, it kind of lost a little bit of the magic that it had because of that reason. Um, but if sequels are adapted to represent the current form of their particular genre somehow, uh, like Resident Evil 5, people are saying Resident Evil 5 should be, it should be a, a third-person shooter with third-person controls to fit in with how most of those games are played now, how much of the original series would really be left? Is there a line that can't be crossed for a game sequel 
Um, or does the evolution of gaming at large constantly move that line so that a franchise can remain part of the series that it's supposed to be while still appealing to fans of the older titles? So is there mm. is there a point that can't be crossed for a series that it's no longer recognizable as a game of that series? Or does the evolution of gaming force us to change these games to be current in the marketplace to still be acceptable? I think um, that sort that question comes down to a matter of just maintaining the name for the sake of the name. If a developer wants to make a new game, you know, to fit the current trend in gaming and, and the way games are evolving, they shouldn't necessarily go ahead and stick it in one of their old universes, like in one of their old franchises, just because. And I think that that comes back a lot to uh, economic reasons, again, because they have that, that following and they'll get people to buy the game. But I think at times, if you want to implement something new, just make something new, you know? Like from just the whole thing, name, mechanics, story, everything. And that's where the real evolution of gaming is going to happen, not when you try to hold on to, to like scraps of what you used to make and, and still adapt it to what's currently going on. I think things happen incrementally. I mean, uh, uh, things... Over time, you can see how it's not it's not terribly difficult to trace the line between Halo and Space Invaders. That mm. that a shoot 'em up starts a certain kind of set of mechanics and and game player expectations. It's a shooter game, and then you wind up down the road with tactical shooters, third person shooters, first person shooters, and there are certain things that are pure. All the way back to the beginning of that of that process, that were that were still true in Space Invaders, um, but those leaps didn't happen from one game to the next. They happen over time as genres morph and add on features and and merge with others. And then once a genre has matured to a certain point, you can see them branch. So you know you've got tactical shooters going one way and third person shooters going another way, but they're still shooters and they still connect back to Space Invaders. So I think I don't know how useful it is in the long run to think about what we might call the the purity of a certain medium of a certain genre or um whether or not we violate x y or z because I just think it's natural that things evolve and and uh go their own ways mm-hmm. but do you think that that with the problem with sequels is that they kind of push forward the idea of sticking within that certain that certain genre so say with the first person shooter genre that really hasn't advanced much in the last few years i'm i'm again thinking sort of uh, the console titles halo resistance uh Killzone. and i'm just wondering whether we will see any great big changes in, in the in the first person shooter genre because at the moment that's successful those games sell um yeah i mean it it's tough i mean the in a genre that's so accepted to be one way, to try and do something wildly different with it, um, it, it, most of the cases, just based on the way people are, it would be rejected just flat out. I mean, even you know certain titles like even like the original Halo, it didn't, it wasn't instantly a success right off the bat. It picked up some steam over time, and you know, and became this this phenomenon that people really attached to. And um, I think for a, a well-established genre to really be changed, I think it. Especially in today's marketplace where, I mean, every game is so expensive and one failure of a game can sink a company instantly. 
So um, I think it's actually going to get harder just as the technology gets better. It's going to get harder to really try something radically different and innovate on a well-established genre. But as long as there are still studios out there like you know Platinum Games, Clover, who took the beat 'em up uh, in Mad World and made it something feeling kind of fresh and new and cool, and as long as those studios are out there, then there will be some chance of, of evolution in all genres. Yes, what we're really talking about is innovation, right? I mean... If an artist inside working inside a genre sees a way of stretching that genre or, or innovating it or sort of tearing down one of the walls that were used to being there um, and people find that exciting or interesting, I mean, I, I realize this seems you know kind of simple-minded and logical, but I, I mean I just think that's really what pushes these things forward. If, if the innovation results in people finding that exciting or interesting and they spend their money on it or they don't, that's sort of judge and jury of that process and um, you just hope that with the rise of these smaller independent developers um, that we've we've mentioned that they can sort of show the way um, in a low-risk environment financially to do certain things that then other studios can pick up on and, and use and that you know we just keep going forward and um, try to plow through these times when we get very very stuck in repetitive me too game design i like that idea that um maybe maybe larger developers should keep an eye on smaller developers who work in that low risk environment as sort of a radar for what will be the future of gaming and when they see a you know one of these low risk low budget creative games uh, gathering a strong following, maybe then it's time to adopt that into you know the big show um, of high budget, high risk games, and then it'll start to really take a firm hold uh, in the future. Hmm. I mean, I, I just wanted to come back to that final idea of I'm I as much I think personally I'm I I'm feel there is an issue with standardization. I do think that certain, again, like I, like I said before, certain genres are becoming too standardized. But I, I wanted to, again, just question whether that that is necessarily a bad thing. Because I, I know, uh, you, Michael, you're, you're very big on uh, on narrative coming to be becoming a bigger part of, of uh, gaming and, and story elements. And uh, take the first-person shooter genre, for example, which you know, we go back to Half-Life for when it's introduced story. Do you think if, if there was this just template which we all accepted for that genre, could we start expanding it and, and really looking at different... I guess it's kind of where you were, what you were talking about. You are saying branching out into different genres, but I'm, I'm sort of thinking more thematically and, and more from a narrative sense. Do you think that in that way, perfecting a genre could actually be beneficial for, for gaming and game development? I do. I, I think a game like Bioshock sort of proves that in some ways, that you... It's an action, you know, shooter sort of adventure elements, I guess, and uh, there, there's nothing terribly ambitious in terms of uh, genre about that game. It's really all about the narrative and how they can work the narrative inside that pre-existing structure. Um, so I think you're right. I think that, that that genre can create this situation within which the the storyteller can play. Um, and that, you know, rather than having to build the ha the house from nothing, you sort of walk into an existing structure that people understand, and then you play with it. Um, the lots of good storytelling can come out of that. 
it seems to me. Especially when, as you see with certain games, there's a certain kind of self-awareness <laughs> that they know, that you know, that we know that we're playing this genre game. And sometimes you can, you can play with that in, with the storytelling in interesting ways. Right. And, and Bioshock being a perfect example of that. Um, uh, just uh, because I, I know we're, we're overrunning slightly, we'll just quickly move on to one thing which I know Eddie uh, wrote a column about, I, think, I believe, um, to do with how we talk about we talk about games and game genres and and the role that games criticism plays and i just wonder whether we do, as people who write about games talk about games have to review games uh, do we expect certain things to be delivered from genre and do you think that in some way as commentators on the industry that we're we're contributing <laughs> to the to the to if there is a standardization that we are contributing to it i think that uh we do we do have a a pretty fair amount of sway in that area because really we're we're just fans but we are uh, a very loud group of fans i guess you could say because you know we we publish our thoughts and if we start to say oh no this this isn't doing it right then then that's uh not good for creativity um because I think it's important that developers explore new ways of doing things. I mean, even though I, d I don't think genre is necessarily a bad thing, but unless it's um, strictly adhered to by everyone, I think the best and most creative games will come out of uh, breaking genre or changing genre or, you know, just creating a new genre. So, yeah, yeah, I definitely think that... Um, Game critics and game journalists have uh, a pretty significant impact just because it is our opinions that are most uh, readily accessible to developers. Uh, I guess I think that reviewers are probably, I don't know if I'm overstating this, but they may be more prone to um, tripping over genre sometimes when, you, when you're reviewing a game um, that is clearly a genre game, then you may very well be tempted to apply the rules of that genre to the game and hold mm -hmm. the game accountable for the degree to which it it's you know faithful to the genre. And uh, you can find a fair amount of that kind of approach around. I think critics may play a more useful role in sort of um, looking, sort of interrogating the genre and trying to understand how it works. And uh, I think the more we do that from our point of view, but also sort of enabling players to think about what they're doing and how the genre works, that um, it's all good, that it all helps uh, de designers and, and players and critics talk to each other about genre in ways that turns out to be interesting as opposed to just sort of a checklist of rules. Yeah, that yeah. checklist is dangerous. Absolutely. Yeah, it is. And, I, you know, the part of the, the interesting thing about Flower to me, sort of getting back to that, is the way that they, I mean, part of their whole approach was to have no checklist. And so as a result, I think, again, I'm probably overstating this, but reviewers um, sort of had <laughs> trouble getting their arms around the game. Um, some of them really liked it, but in my opinion, didn't couldn't really articulate many interesting reasons why um, talking a lot about the controls, talking a lot about the visuals, but uh, some critics really just jumped on it because here was something that kind of, you know, 
turned things around and challenged a set of assumptions about what games should be. And so some very interesting writing about the game occurred from the point of criticism. And I, I guess I'd argue that that's the difference between the reviewing and the criticism about that game may largely be about the lack of the checkbox. Right, and I, I think I might have to have... Not necessarily hold my hand up guiltily, but I can certainly understand what you're saying because I, I did have to review the game for for my website and I I tried to speak uh, as emotionally as I could about the game, but I did find it troubling. It did feel like I, I there, there's this checklist and I, I certainly agree that... Um, is it that difference between writing about games in a review sense and in a, in a well blogging sense to be to be frank about it, it can sometimes affect the way we look at games uh, I, I know Joe you wanted to say something quickly yeah I think um, it's it, it's definitely uh, affects the way we look at these games and the critical eye on a game will definitely affect the way you you go into an experience and you th- uh, you can't just go into it and ignore a lot of things and it's different than a, a regular person doing it. Um, I think Resident Evil 5 is a great example of this because uh, a lot of the press, especially uh, from the, the gaming press and the fans who had played the demo, a lot of it was about how, oh, the controls are terrible. And I, I think a lot of people went into playing the demo and the retail game with that idea in their head that, oh, this is not going to be that good. It's going to be a little you know, hard to control. And I mean, my, a couple of friends of mine who don't really follow gaming press went into Resident Evil 5 and I asked them what they thought of it and they didn't mention the controls at all. And I think that... Um, some of the, the public opinion out there was definitely influenced by the way that the critics uh, kind of lambasted uh, the way it controlled. And I'm not saying that it's flawless, but I'm, I'm saying that I think that it was definitely uh, blown out uh, proportion a lot. And um, I, I just wanted to say that I think that sometimes uh, writers go a little overboard on what they're trying to say. And I, I think personally that most games should be judged more based on their own merits and not as much... Um, you know the entire genre on a whole, and, and and every other game that's kind of like it. I think uh, if a game can offer a lot on its own and and, um, and be a worthwhile experience, it should be proven as so, and and not so much that it, it isn't as much like Gears as some people would like it to be. And um, so yeah, I think that the press, the way they handle things, sometimes is a little uh, a little too critical on a whole. Um, game press is still evolving and it's still getting much bigger than it ever was and uh, as right. it evolves these these type of things will play out and, and everything will eventually be better it is easy to forget that the with the, the the way that the game gaming is expanding gaming press is of course expanding with it although having said that with a whole economic situation but anyway that's a whole different <laughs> <laughs> topic I, I, I we've definitely overrun so i'm going to close with just one final question and ask uh, my guests to give a definitive answer on it which is that first question we, we started off the whole discussion. Are genres hurting game development? Eddie, yes or no? Not 100%. <laughs> That's not really definitive. Okay, okay. No, they're not, they're not hurting game development, uh, but they may not be the best thing for game development. <laughs> okay. Uh, Michael? Well, uh, I I say they are not hurting development. In fact, I would say in the hands of the right developers, they liberate creativity. Hmm. Joe, I will say also that they are not hurting development. But and as Michael said, in the right hands, they are definitely um, helping people. But there are not as many pairs of the right hands out there as there are pairs of the lazy. Um, <laughs> and so yeah. I think that's that's a problem um, with genre. 
Okay, uh, better off in my own opinion after I got lambasted on, I think, the show for, for not saying anything. I think that in the hands of larger developers, they are. I think in the hands of small developers, it's not. It, it's. It, I agree with Michael, it's giving them this freedom. And I, I would say there are certain genres, and I would per, point firmly in the direction of the first-person shooter and the Japanese RPG, which have become, in my opinion, stagnated uh, by their genre. But there you go. Right, <laughs> that went a lot longer than I expected it to, <laughs> but uh, I just wanted to, to say thank you to, uh, first of all, Eddie for stepping in the last minute, uh, mm-hmm. did a great job, and uh, and to Michael uh, for coming on. And um, guys, uh, let's start with Eddie, are there any plugs and shout outs you'd like to make this week? Um, just Gamernode.com, I've been working on bringing it back to, to something a little different than your typical uh, video game website. There's not a whole lot of news reporting, but uh, more columns and editorials and you know uh, individual writers uh, giving their take on specialized subjects. Um, got a lot of things planned, and we're uh, working on really improving moving forward. That's GamerNode.com. Excellent. Uh, how about you, Michael? Well, I'm going to be at GDC uh, this next week, and I'll be uh, writing pieces on the blog um, based on my experiences there. So come on by and read those and comment if you like. And um, I also encourage everyone to try out a game called The Path by uh, Tale of Tales, which I finished just a few minutes before we started the podcast. And uh, I think there'll be lots of interesting conversation about that game for those who try it. Uh, and so there's my game plug <laughs> nice excellent michael i was just bought the path yesterday I haven't started it up yet but i'm i'm eager to get into it i hear it's very uh, interesting to say it is be patient okay be patient and it <laughs> and it's not you know it's 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 flawed i mean it's not it's got issues sure. <laughs> but it's well worth it great you heard it here first on big red patient <laughs> <laughs> how's that that's my summary review right there <laughs> <laughs> excellent well, that's copyright to me now, so that's pretty. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, guys, thank you so much. Uh, I, I'm hoping that people will find this. I've, I, I think it's been a brilliant show, and I, I really hope that listeners agree. Um, next week, we're going to be joined by two of our friends at TGR. We're going to be, like I said, talking about Final Fantasy. And uh, So join us next Monday. Until then, have a great week. Joe, any closing thoughts for Prosperity? Yeah, actually, I just wanted to uh, plug Michael's uh, podcast. Um, I hadn't actually heard it. I've read your, your blog a few times, but I hadn't actually heard your podcast until uh, Sanan recommended it to me this past week. And uh, for anyone who hasn't checked it out, it's really great, um, very intelligent, very well well put, great interviews, great everything. So um, Brainy Gamer, uh, Sanan will put the link to the website in the show notes, I'm sure. But uh, to anyone who hasn't checked it out, please, please go on and do it. Well, Thanks very much. That's very nice of you. Well, fantastic. Anyway, it, this has been Big Red Potion, and uh, that's it. Okay. Oh. Thank you for listening to Big Red Potion, brought to you as part of the Game On Network of podcasts from thegamereviews.com, home to unbiased thoughts from a community of gamers. You can find more about the podcast at bigredpotion.com, with links to previous shows and forum threads where you can continue the discussion. You can follow show updates through Twitter by following either myself at twitter.com slash shoinan, S-H-O-I-N-A-N, or Joe at twitter.com slash slam vanderhuge, slam, V-A-N-D-E-R, huge. All that's left to do is thank the man behind the theme tune, Derek K. Miller. Derek, take us out for washing off like an aardvark.